brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where there's an explosion sound effect. And then I go, wee! <laughs> My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. One that is nearby explosion sound effects, as yeah. it turns out. Uh, which has... Everything to do with film criticism. <laughs> yes, 100%. You know what? We did review a film this year called Tick, Tick, Boom. I think that, that counts. So uh, it, it's all justified. All these years we've been using it. Uh, how many explosions do you think you've seen in your career as a film critic? Uh, right? At, at least 10 too many. <laughs> just just the 10? Uh, you know what? I, we've probably when, seen thousands upon thousands when, of explosions. Uh, when it's like... A, a bunch of B filmmakers who are just sort of like running around the streets of Los Angeles setting cars on fire. That's exciting. Oh, very exciting. Or, or uh, you know, um, Brian Trenchard Smith is out in the outback of Australia blowing up cars. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, when it's a head exploding. Also I'm, fun. I am there. Yes. 100%. Scanners. A head, a body part, a, a yeah. human body. Just you ever see of... the Fury? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they filmed that explosion from 13 separate angles. And they used every single one. <laughs> it's amazing. Amy Irving makes big eyes at John Cassavetes, and John Cassavetes explodes. It's like, uh, worth the price of admission. Uh, but when it's like a CGI explosion of a gigantic Harrier jet or uh, yeah. an aircraft carrier or a lab... I'm, I'm tired of that stuff. I'm tired you are of labs exploding. When was the last time a lab exploding thrilled you? Because I can name mine. Um, I, I don't. I can't even think. Of, like when I first started seeing it when I was a kid, mm -hmm. in like Saturday morning cartoons or comic books. Yeah, I always felt bad for the lab. Yeah, the lab is innocent in this. <laughs> The lab is actually a lot of expensive equipment. Usually when the lab blows up, it's a symbol that it's the villain's lab. And it's a symbol that the villain has died. And, often. And, they're, and often their plan the has been foiled. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the, and hoisted up by their own petard, something horrible happens and their lab explodes. Mm -hmm. And there's lab technicians running around. Something that started, I think, in James Bond movies. I think it started right. in, uh, uh, like, universal horror movies. Like, Frankenstein's oh, lab explodes on, like, yeah. Pride of Frankenstein. I was gonna say, yeah, maybe early earlier precedent would be like a an old serial where there's a fight and there's a fight oh, yeah. in the room with the fight. Commando Cody, that kind uh, of thing. Yeah, um, I always wanted them to salvage the lab. Mm. It's like, oh no, let's let's fight. Oh sh no, don't don't hit that. Don't hit. We can actually use this compute the <laughs> supercomputer that the supervillain yeah. clearly put a lot of time and resources into mm -hmm. for benevolent purposes. We can use this to help us theoretically. No, let's just blow it up. What a waste. The last I, time, I always felt so bad. It was such a waste of resources. The last time I was thrilled by a lab explosion was way back when I saw Darkman in theaters. Okay. Because in Darkman, at the beginning, there's a lab explosion at the beginning, and it's the hero's lab. Mm. And they like they really mess him up and like dump chemicals onto him and everything. It was what's all, all the dark man burnt up and has no skin. But yeah. they have this uh, uh, thing where uh, they have this one of those drinky birds, you know, the ones that go bob up and down. And oh it's yeah, kinda yeah. Like it, 
ignite the thing that makes it explode. And he's just like crawling, trying to hit that, get to that before it makes the lab explode. And he just misses it. And it turns him into Dark Man. Like that right there, because he had that level of suspense and the drinky bird. I have lived my entire life <laughs> wanting that drinky bird. You can still get them. Uh, you can. You know where you can't find them? Just out and about. You have to go to like a, a like a Cracker Barrel gift shop. You have or to something. go to like some kind yeah. of novelty store. But like you don't just like go to the market and pick up you know eggs and cheese and broccoli and drinky birds. <laughs> you don't yeah, just have they're, them there. They're kind of, they're, go to go to Archie McPhee. Archie McPhee will have mm. them. I don't know who he is. Oh, Archie McPhee is, they're like a, one of the bigger manufacturers of like novelty widgets and, oh, and knickknacks. Like if, Does it make like fake vomit and stuff? Like if you, if you want a small hand, you can fit on the end of your fingertip. That's Archie McPhee. If you, uh, it's not just uh, vomit, uh, like horse masks, sure. um, uh, bacon flavored unicorn poop, you know, that, just the I usual have, kinds of hipster stuff. Something, something has always bothered me about fake vomit. Mm, Who never modeled looked. the vomit? Like, what are they, what are they trying to recreate? Like whose vomit? What well, day was it? Fake vomit. Uh, we'll get to movies, by the way. Oh it's, yeah, we got fun. movies. Yeah, we got movies. We got movies. We, We're we, doing West Side Story, <laughs> being the Ricardos, and Red Rocket. But this is more important right now. Uh, I'm gonna look up Archie McPhee. Like, I'll tell you what some of their stuff is. Okay. But um, uh, fake the fake vomit that you get from the novelty shop mm-hmm. never looks like vomit. It it looks like a puddle of like milk with dog food around the edge. Yeah. And vomit never falls like that. And it's also like a little teeny tiny pile. Oh, yeah. It's like nobody vomits just that much. Yeah. If they do, you know, they wouldn't they, like vomit like on trying the floor. So hard, really. yeah. It's more of acid reflux yeah. than anything else. So uh, I've always been sort of upset that fake vomit doesn't look like, like it needs to be a mm. big rubber sheet you can roll out. Oh, there must have been like at some point. Mm. It's like like uh, when they decided that like what in Fahrenheit, what's like body temperature? It's like 98.6. Yeah, 98.6 degrees. 98.6 degrees. That's kind of arbitrarily chosen, isn't it? We just took so much temperature and like, ah, 98.6. I guess that's fine now. Like, I feel like that's uh... it for fake vomit. Like, one point they found some vomit (laughs) and they're like, okay, it looks like that. I'm like, really? We don't want to like test other vomits? Like, nah, this one's fine. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's typical. And then it turns out, no, we've been lied to all our lives. See, um, Archie McPhee will give you, uh, bandages with Bigfoot on them. Nice. Very small rubber chickens. How, uh, how small are we talking uh, about? Here? Like about a, about an inch long. That's very small rubber chickens. Yeah, uh, crows, finger crows. You can put on the ends of your fingers. Adorable. Um, a wind up peanut uh, being driven by an opossum. Uh, Good. A lawn ornament that is uh, Bigfoot in a lotus position. A, Done. A dead opossum wearing a Santa suit. Um, Aw. Not a real dead opossum. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Okay. A dead opossum air freshener. Mm. Uh, a stress tardigrade. It's a little sque- squeezy stress ball in the shape of a tardigrade, the, the microscopic creature. Weird. Uh, uh, emergency googly eyes. 500 googly eyes in a tub. Uh, bandages that look like bacon. Uh, deluxe rubber chicken, full size. Good. Um, those, oh, if you remember those little rude uh, saying uh, button push devices. Like, like key chains, or you just press them, like, say, kiss my butt, kiss my butt. Uh, yeah, 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 that kind of thing. Yeah. You smell, you smell. Uh, yeah, uh, shut uh, up. This one will give you compliments if you push buttons. See, that's nicer. Why didn't we start with that? <laughs> but yeah, go to, why go, didn't we start with that? That's such a better idea. Go go to uh, McPhee M N C P H E McPhee dot com and you can see all the Mar- Archie McPhee stuff. I used to be obsessed with Archie McPhee, and I would order stuff from them all the time. And then I kind of got over it. Yeah. Speaking of getting over it. Uh, we're talking about some big Oscar contenders this yeah, week. Yeah, really big. This, we're only reviewing three movies this week, but these yeah. are big films. Yeah, in, in, in terms of awards attention. In, in uh, terms of pedigree. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're talking about 
Again, we're talking about Steven Spielberg's remake of West Side Story. We're talking about uh, Aaron Sorkin's Being the Ricardos, about the making of The Isle of Lucy show. And we're talking about Red Rocket, which I'm the director of The Florida Project, right? Yeah, Sean Baker. Sean Baker, I forgot his name for a second. Um, So uh, do you want to just dive right in? Sure. Uh, What do you want to talk about first? Well, I feel like West Side Story has the biggest imprimatur. Even Uh, though it's it's kind of, people would say it's underperforming at the box office. I would argue Uh, that there's still a pandemic going on and people aren't necessarily flocking unless... It feels like a cultural have, event, which is what the superhero movies do, and no. not what musicals do. No, well, not yeah. not currently. Although this yeah. has been a great year for musicals. Actually, so, yes, it has. Uh, but because this is actually quite a good uh, version of West Side Story, it, mm. it feels like a revival. I want to compare oh, sure. it to Kenneth Branagh's remake of Murder on the Orient of Express, mm-hmm. where you kind of know the original. The original mm-hmm. will always be the the, the big good one. one. Yeah, uh, but this is like. A really fun revival of something yeah. you know really well. It's a perfectly valid mm. version of it. It's basically the same story. They make a few changes, well, mostly, for, mostly, mostly the story changes. I think are for mm. the better. But, so, uh, if, but uh, regardless, it's like it's just new cast, new cinematographer, yeah. a new director wanted to put their stamp on it, and it's Spielberg, mm. and he'd never directed a musical before, which is mm. weird if you think about it. He kind of just flitted about between genres, but he never mm. did a whole musical. He did musical numbers. The opening of Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom is a musical number and a pretty good one. Mm. Uh, 1941 has like an amazing like Zoot Suit Riot sequence. I have not seen 1941. Oh, um, it's it's a little underrated. I think it's it's <laughs> it's not great. It's like it's way too big for its britches and it goes all over the place. But when it's good, it's amazing. But, uh, but yes, this is based on the 1961 film. It has mm. uh, the great Jerome Robbins uh, choreography intact. Mm-hmm. It has the same. Uh, uh, Score intact, um, but now slightly reinterpreted by uh, Thomas Newman. And, uh, yeah, it's the same story. It's inspired by uh, Romeo and Juliet, but set in uh, 1950s New York, west, the west side of New York. And it's about uh, the uh, white JDs and... JD stands for juvenile Juvenile delinquents and, uh, and the Puerto Rican immigrants and how they're... The, the two rival gangs, the Jets and the Sharks, come to blows over a romance that springs up between Tony and Maria. Uh, Tony in this version is played by Ansel Elgort. Maria is played by Rachel Ziegler in her first movie. And uh, you'd never know. She's good. She, Yeah, she really, she avails herself quite well. Yeah. Uh, he, not so much. Uh, he's actually the weakest part of this movie. And by far. Yeah, he, um, I mean, t- Tony, the character of Tony is kind of a wet blanket anyway going back to the 1961 version he's actually the also the least interesting character but what we need from tony is the songs we need the music we mm-hmm. need him to sing something's coming we need him to sing maria mm-hmm. and uh ansel elgord is just isn't quite bringing it he's bringing like 75 percent yeah it's ansel elgord is um there's a saying in the theater at least when i was doing theater this was a saying which is uh, your cast is only as good as its weakest link because you either have to act at their level, or you have to act around them, and then they're going to look bad. Mm. Ansel Elgort in this movie, and frankly, I've never seen him be particularly good in anything. Like he's, no, no, he's, he's like he was okay in The Fault in Our Stars, but I wasn't impressed. He was he's just okay. sort of fine. He's, he yeah. kind of rubbed me the wrong way in The Fault in Our Stars. I thought it was really yeah. grating. Yeah. Uh, and but regardless, so I'm like. like which YA adaptation was he in? It was the uh, either Divergent or Hunger Games. One of those. He was. He wasn't in either of those. He was, I think, in the remake of Carrie, 
If memory oh, starts. was he? Okay. Um, I think he, he played the John Travolta role. He he's a little bit of a non-entity when it comes to screen charisma, and uh, yeah. that's uh, that's death in a musical. Well, it's it's not. It doesn't work here for a variety of reasons. He's like functional. Obviously, he's doing the choreography. He's hitting the notes. Mm. Um, but you say all we need really need from Tony is the songs. I disagree. I think we need the songs, but I think we need to see passion. Mm. We need to see this. Like well, I'm willing to throw the... everything away for this perfect romance. That I perceive, and I think it's true for any Romeo and Juliet story. And I look at Ansel Elgort in this movie, and I see no inner world with behind his eyes. Well, uh, and that this comes to a, another sort of vague issue. This isn't a big problem with the movie, but um, I, I feel like the music is dead on. Uh, yeah. Spielberg knows he, I mean, it's great music anyway, but mm-hmm. they're able to, uh, it's really, really well produced. Mm-hmm. The choreography is really, really great. And Spielberg is the type of a filmmaker who knows to edit less oh, and move God. the camera less, especially when it comes to dancing. So we see the dancing and we're impressed by it. It's this, gorgeous. This is, this is a, this is a textbook. <laughs> Here's how to film a dance number in a movie. In the yeah. yeah. Like, it's really good. It's, it's yeah. been so frustrating having to suffer yeah. through this entire like 15 to 20 year period of filmmakers not knowing how to make musicals uh, or having the, uh, casts who can't pull it off and having yeah. to edit around them. And then mm. either way, we still don't get a great looking musical. Yeah. So Sh- regardless, it sucks. Sh- Chicago won best picture at the Academy oh. Awards. It is a terrible film. It's a good musical. I like Chicago mm. uh, as a musical, but as a movie, it doesn't work. It's, it's edited to shit. And, yeah. uh, and not everybody was, was really proficient in song and dance. So they kind of yeah. had to cut around a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, in this they're proficient in song and dance. And uh, most particularly, mm. um, Ariana DeBose, who plays Anita. Mm. And, Which is uh, the role that won... Um, Rita Moreno uh, an Academy Oscar. Award. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, Mike Face, who plays Riff, uh, who's sort of the... Kind of, I guess he's sort of the Mercutio character. Um, yeah, I guess he kind of yeah. is. Yeah, he's, mm. kind, he's kind of a cross between... I guess... It's kind of a cross between Vivoli and Mercutio. It's not a perfect one-to-one. Because he's because he's instigating the fight. Mercutio tried to stay out of it, but then he ended up dying. Yeah. Here yeah. he's kind of both. Um Mike faced and is it Anita DeBose? Uh, Ariana DeBose. Ariana DeBose, sorry. Plays Anita. I, yeah. I, I the I character is Anita. Yeah, yeah I see how I did that. Um They are powerhouses. Yes. They are watching them on screen. I don't think I've ever seen them in anything before. They both have some credits, but mostly I think they come from theater. Um, I, I'm trying to remember the last time. because And, and Rachel's well, in this er- really good too, but like these two in particular, you watch them on screen and you're just like, where have you been? Yeah, well, we Ari- needed you. Ariana DeBose has been on stage mostly. Yes. She was in Hamilton. And she was? Uh, she was also, I think she was the girlfriend in The Prom. But the girlfriend is <sighs> like, like such this, yeah, like yeah. this background character. Yeah. But yeah, Mike uh, Face hasn't been in a lot. I, I remember when uh, when La La Land came out and yeah. how, oh, how God. I, I do not like La La Land. I think uh, I think the, the the music and the dancing aren't there in La La Land, which no. is kind of the point of La La Land. I think Land. it opens strong. That opening number is quite good, but like uh, it, none of the cast is in that. It, it's it's a good idea, but mm. more than it is a, a good movie. And I I argued at the time that you could go to New York and go to like any deli or restaurant, mm. talk to the waiter or waitress who is clearly an aspiring actor as well. Yeah. 
and just cast them yeah. at random, and you'd get better performances than the the movie stars we I, got. You, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. You put Mike Face and Ariana DeBose in La La Land. Oh my God, would that movie be actually the best movie? <laughs> yeah, it'd yeah. be absolutely. They are electric. They understand the material. They understand the tone. They can sing amazingly. They dance incredibly. These are like the featured supporting players. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're like little tiny roles. They're big roles, but you know they're not the big roles in the movie. They're amazing. Everyone in this movie is either exceptionally good or genuinely amazing, except Ansel Elgort, who is like barely fine. And, 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 and I, I, I feel and, like, and, and Rachel Ziegler, uh, she's uh, she sings very very well. Yeah, she's great. Um, but I feel like. Th- in this version of West Side Story, the romance is given the shortest shrift. Yeah. And so uh, she is unfortunately kind of... She's trapped. Not, she's trapped by, A, the, the the conveniences of the story, and also her lack of chemistry with Tony, which yeah. we can put again, back down. So or, or again, that. you're only as uh, good as your weakest link then, here. And when your entire story resides on, this was a passionate and... West Side Story is a very chaste version of Romeo and Juliet. I've always mm. kind of been frustrated by it just because it just, I just, I never really, even in the original movie, which is a great movie. I like that movie a lot. Tony is also kind of the weak link in that movie too. He's just kind of not very interesting. And I always feel like we're fighting for this not very interesting romance. And I think uh. that's a danger here. You want your Romeo and Juliet, however you're doing, you're doing it straight. You're doing a musical. You're doing some kind of vampire version, whatever you're doing. I don't care. It's it's a plot that's been done a million times. If you want it to work, we have to believe that these two people are so into each other. It could be love. It could just be lust. Whatever it is, they're so into each other that they're willing to throw everything else away for it. Because mm. at some point in our lives, hopefully, we know what that feels like. If we don't believe that, the movie doesn't work. So as much as... Almost every part of this movie is amazing. The cinematography is astounding. The choreography is astounding. Mm. The restaging is astounding. 98% of the cast is astounding. (laughs) But because the one person in the cast who is like mediocre at best Mm. here, like he's technically proficient, but he's just not bringing anything interesting to it. Um, Because of that, it drags the movie down. The movie is not bad. It's still very, very good. But I think about like, if you had gotten like, a young Brando type, you know, someone well, who actually had like some what, real, and that's kind of what they're going for. Yeah, with, they added like, didn't they add well, like some think... backstory to him where he was like a little bit darker? Like... What? Uh, well, what, what they did uh, with this movie is uh, Spielberg made it more like a movie, so there's actually a lot more dialogue. It's a little mm. talkier than a stage production would be. Yeah. So they've expanded a lot of the non-singing parts of this musical, mm. which, as it turns out, kind of drags down the whole pace of the thing. Uh, I, I feel like it doesn't have the kind of zip and the, the jump to the next number that it kind of needs. Mm-hmm. When the music is playing and everybody's dancing, this movie is alive. Yeah. Everything in between, we're kind of like settling in and waiting for the next song to start. And yeah. because this is the kind of mu- movie where you're going to be humming the songs going in, <laughs> uh, you're, you're waiting for the big songs. Yeah. Uh, I f- feel like Spielberg did add a lot to this movie. Um compared to the stage production, compared to the other movie, that do enhance it. Yeah. Uh, for one, he changed the setting to not just a neighborhood in New York, but a neighborhood in New York that is in the midst of being torn down. Yeah. We see, there's a lot of cranes and construction yeah. equipment and buildings and empty lots. It looks like the neighborhood uh, from Battery is not included. 
right yeah. down to like a lot of the location is at like this one hmm. kind of like uh, drugstore, malt shop, whatever that's in the middle of a block with nothing else. Yeah, like, it's all uh, been ripped out. Yeah. So uh, the uh, the battle between these two gangs, they're battling over a, a neighborhood that's essentially going to be gone soon, which sort yeah. of highlights the tragedy and I think adds a, a heck of a lot of texture to the story. Yeah, the element of um, utility to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's going to be the last person on the shrinking iceberg. I, I really liked that. Uh, they gave the somewhere song. Yeah, uh, there's a place for us, not to uh, Tony and Maria. Mm-hmm. But they gave it to Rita Moreno, who plays the owner of one of the shops. Yeah. Uh, she's she's back in the, in this movie. Um, Different role, obviously. Uh, she she's ninety now, so she can't play Maria anymore. She yeah. could have. Why not? Hey, fuck it, let's do it. <laughs> I'll watch that. Rachel Ziegler was fine. I don't want to replace yeah. her. But um, uh, she in because she's singing uh, somewhere. There's a place for us. Mm. The meaning of the song changes. It's not about two people being in love, because uh, where it comes in the musical is would be at this really weird point where it's kind Maria of the, just learned that Tony uh, committed this horrible act of violence. Everyone's and, kind of at their lowest, yeah. basically. And it's supposed to be about, you know, reestablishing hope in their yeah. relationship. There's, there's hope, but there's also mm. a little bit of futility. Like we, this is a dream we're having. Like mm. there's a place for us somewhere. somewhere a place for yeah. us. Yeah. yeah. Hold my hand. We're halfway there. Uh, yeah, sure. But you're in your she, apartment. Uh, Rita Moreno sings it and it becomes a lot more about just the immigrant experience mm-hmm. about uh, there's a place for us somewhere in this country. Yeah. Uh, America will accept us somewhere. It actually uh, sort it's of a really un- good under- underlines that uh, that sense of futility. I think it's a really mm. good change. I really uh, do. I think it's a smart play. Mm. It's one of maybe the boldest deviation from the original material. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and it's a Good idea. I'm glad they did it. I think it's smart. Uh, Spielberg restored uh, some of the song order in uh, the 1961 film. Uh, the song "Cool," "Stay Cool, Boy." Yeah, uh, came after the Rumble. Yeah, and everybody's freaking out, and everybody's sort of uh, you know there's some violence at the Rumble, and everybody's yeah. on edge, and like action is getting uh, really intense. And they sing the song "Stay Cool," but it's kind of jazzy and intense in unto yeah. itself. That's a good spot for that song. Uh, in this version, they put that before the rumble, and it's actually a, a conversation weird. between Tony and Riff. I love the choreography where they're kind yeah. of like handing a gun back and forth between the two of them on this soundstage. Well, uh, Riff is saving it. Like, Riff is doing a great job in that bit. But like, yeah. it, I actually think in, in that case, I think that actually was kind of better in the original. I think it makes yeah, a little bit more sense so, in that um, spot, you know? Uh, that, that's And uh, one, this is a small detail, but there's a... a, a almost a bit player, a side character named Anybody's. And uh, Anybody's uh, in the 1961 film is presented as uh, sort of this tomboyish character, this young woman who wants to be one of the Jets. And she's not allowed to be one of the Jets because she's a girl. Uh, In this version, he is explicitly a trans man. Yeah. And uh, and wants to be one of the Jets. And this is the 1950s. The Jets still see him as female. Yeah. And uh, they can't wrap their head around. Him. Yeah. And they're just they can't accept that. They don't understand it. And when they finally accept him as one of the Jets, I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's a gang. It's part of this like futile gang war. Yeah. And it's actually, but it, and it's the actually gang, kind the of like is... this this small tender moment for this yeah. side character that, uh, you know, actually kind of gives that character validation. Yeah. It was another good change. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of genuinely good changes to the material mm-hmm. here. A few where I think it's more of a lateral move, like even moving uh, be cool. To be cool, uh, I think it's just called cool. Cool, but, uh, moving that around, I, I like it better where it was in the original film, but it's fine here. Like, it doesn't really ruin the film in any meaningful way. Just maybe pacing would have been stronger. 
Um, G Officer Krupke is like such a good number. One of my one of my favorite of all Broadway numbers. It's a great and number the, in general. This staging of it's really fun. Yeah, they're in the police station and this yeah. staging of it, and uh, it's all the side characters are saying G yeah. Officer Krupke, and uh, in this one it's just a bunch of guys goofing around. Yeah, it's really silly. Yeah, it's a and silly I, number. And, Officer and Krupke isn't the, in the scene. Uh, in, yeah. in fact, in the original staging of West Side Story on stage, uh, G. Officer Krupke went after the rumble. That was supposed to be like the lighthearted oh, number. Weird. It's like that is the wrong place That's for a that horrible number. Horrible place for that number. My <laughs> God, it's it's Romeo and Juliet. It gets more intense. Yeah, it's supposed you don't to want to break the tension completely. What are yeah, you doing? G. Officer Krupke is such an upbeat like, number. I mean, here in this version, I think it's the original as well. You still get the uh, Maria's "I Feel Pretty," uh-huh. and that comes after the Rumble. But she doesn't know what's happened yet. Mm. So there's this element of tragedy to it. Like she still thinks everything is wonderful. She's still, mm. you know, tiptoeing through the tulips. And it's just a matter of time before someone gives her the news that everything has gone to hell. Yeah. Uh, so that that bit is beautifully staged here. But it's got the element of like I'm, we're, we're, but she doesn't know yet, mm. so it, it taints it in a really incredible way. Uh, Janusz Kaminski has done almost every single Spielberg film since Schindler's List. I think every yeah. single one. Oh, I, I, I maybe Ready Player, maybe like Tintin doesn't count or something like that. But like, I, 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 let me look up Janusz Kaminski. But um, I'm pretty sure he's done every single one since Spielberg's done, and uh, they clearly like work well together. Mm. Janusz Kaminski has a look. He likes to do, he likes to sort of bleach out, uh, not, not in an artificial way, just sort mm-hmm. of like, he likes muted palettes. He likes uh, windows with sun, with the sunlight blowing out of it, so you can't even yeah. see out the window. And it creates these giant shafts Let's of see. light. War of the Worlds, Munich, Crystal Skull. Yeah. Uh, he did do Tintin. Yeah, okay, uh, okay. I mean, so there's no, he did do Tintin. No, okay. no cameras in that, but he did, well, yeah. I guess he did like artificial well, lighting. That's that's still um, lighting. You still have to yeah. figure out where the light sources are coming from. War, uh, Warhorse, Lincoln, BFG, The Post, Ready Player One, uh, yeah, and West okay. Side Story. So pretty much everything. And, is... and he's and he's all filming The Fablemans, which is Spielberg's next right. film. So they've worked together since Chandler's List. He has a style. Mm. And I was frankly a little concerned because I sometimes find Janusz Kaminski's cinematography style a little drab. It's it's oftentimes impeccably framed, mm. and it's telling the story very very well. But I think he just has an aesthetic, and sometimes I don't think it always works with the same material. He he, uh, he likes to wash out the frame with backlighting to the point yeah. where it's kind of there's so much solar flare in your eye you can't really see a lot. He started yeah. doing that with Minority Report. Yeah, and he does a lot here. In some scenes, it's really annoying. The scene yeah. where uh, Riff is buying the gun oh, yeah. from uh, some, some like. Bad, bad guys in a bar. Yeah, it's it's, it's a there's bit so of there's so much yeah backlighting and solar flare that I can't see what's going on in the scene. And and so admittedly, sometimes he steps over the line here too. But I was actually really impressed by how modulated his cinematography mm-hmm. was here, and how it opens with this incredible like I don't maybe some of it was CGI, but like this big it looks shot like a wonder, yeah, yeah, big wonder of of like this town, this uh, this borough in New York that's being demolished, and it's it's very Janusz Kaminski. It's very, very much... It's muted color palette, kind of a light blue kind of thing going here. And yet, as the story goes on, depending on the musical number, depending on the scene, the colors can really pop. Mm. Uh, the mambo scene, the, the dance-off, the dance gorgeously colorful. Mm. Uh, the uh, America song that uh, Anita mm. sings, unbelievably colorful really nicely done really knowing like when to deviate from the from the the house style basically yeah. 
and it's 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 a fantastic looking motion picture oh, by absolutely. any standard. I think it, it's it's a gorgeous. It's easily one of the best looking movies of the year. It's uh, we talk about how you know the I I feel I feel like the pacing is really low. I feel like it's a little too talky. I feel like Tony is just not not a strong he's, element he, of he's this just movie. Miscast. That, that's um, all. In fact, it's yeah. weird to think about like. Spielberg doesn't miscast very often. In fact, he's usually very good about finding mm. actors, even actors who would be a little unexpected yeah. in their roles. Uh, and it's this is like the biggest, like, I was like, why did you go with him? Well, you, what, you did, can, what did he show you in the audition you, you that I'm tell, not seeing here? You can tell he's going for like kind of a wild one. He's trying to get he's trying to get a young Brando he vibe. Has no intensity. And he has no he's, passion. Yeah, he's, he's not nearly as intense as a young Brando, but th- that's sort of what he was going for. And I... And he comes across as a little bit of a boring character, which is uh, kind of death for the entire musical. You know but you know who could have weirdly is... been great? Hmm. Barry Keoghan. <laughs> it would have been a weird choice. I think he would have been great. If he can dance, I don't know if he can. Yeah. He, he would have had like a really interesting energy to this. Yeah, he's, he, he's too old now, but Jamie Bell would have done a great Tony back in the day. Some people suggested uh, uh, Alden Ehrenreich, also a little too old now, but my God, he would have been good. Yeah. He would have been really good. I, I feel like he would have been a good riff, but... Uh, Either one, really. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's there's too much good in this to dismiss it out out of hand though. Uh, oh, there, there's no, actually no be, it's yeah. actually a lot of really exhilarating stuff, um, and the the songs and the music are right there. Yeah. They are like high Broadway quality. I feel like Spielberg really brought back to the movie musical a lot of panache that was missing from the genre until this year when we saw like four great ones. Yeah, because the also this year we had In the Heights and mm-hmm. we had Tick Tick Boom uh, and we had. Uh, Vivo. Uh, <laughs> I like the songs from Vivo. Vivo's, not, the, Vivo's not a great movie, but I, I like the songs from I, Vivo. I didn't see Vivo. I, I feel that, like we're forgetting one. Cyrano isn't out yet, but that's oh, coming yeah, up as well. I haven't seen that. I've Joe, heard good things, but Joe I haven't Wright's seen it yet. Cyrano yet. I feel, like there's an, I feel like there's at least one or two more mm. decent, if not really good musicals, mm. but I digress. Um, yeah, uh, musicals, uh, as, as we're learning, aren't giant business and the heights didn't make a lot of money. No. Uh, tick, tick, boom got some awards attention. Uh, and I think it was cheaper to make, uh, but, mm. uh, wasn't like a runaway hit or anything. And this yeah. one is rather famously tanking cause it cost a hundred million dollars and yeah. made 14. It might have domestically. legs. Uh, it might have legs. It might well, just, we, uh, it might just last. That's what happened to Titanic. Yeah. It's happened to the greatest showman. Uh, you and I saw this, uh, in, in a cineplex, uh, yeah. and we were the youngest people in the theater by at least 30 years. I would say so. so uh, and There's, it wasn't packed. It wasn't packed. It was very. It was pretty sparse. Honestly, it, it, was, it, was, it was modestly attended. Uh, but yeah, I would say about twenty percent full, if that. The uh, the gigantic movies tend to be uh, visited over and over again by a younger audience. Yeah. Teenagers go seeing these movies over and over. Uh, the box office power of the over seventy crowd should not be underestimated. No, and uh, they're not quick to go out and see it opening weekend, mm, but especially during a pandemic. It, but they'll see it, and uh, so yeah. I, this one might creep along and end up earning a little extra money. Consider, I don't really care. I think no. you should see the movie. Sure. Uh, especially if you like musicals, especially if you like West Side Story. This is a wonderful revisitation yeah. of familiar material with uh, a lot of uh, enough added material mm-hmm. to make it uh, a little a little richer and enhance the overall yeah. West Side Story experience. It's it's so frustrating that this movie which is uh, unabashedly great in almost every way. Mm-hmm. It just has like one and and again, I don't want you to go in there thinking this Ansel Elgort guy, who a lot of people find distasteful for a lot of reasons that have mm. nothing to do with the movie, I'll let you Google that for yourself. Mm. Um, I don't want you to go in there thinking that he's just 
completely incompetent. It's just he's not. He's we, just we, not, not as good as the great performers around him. We he is at the very good regional theater vibe, <laughs> and everyone else is headlining on Broadway. Yeah, he yeah. can do it, but he isn't bringing anything extra. Mm. He isn't selling the material the way everyone else is doing. He's just doing the material, yeah, and it and it hurts the movie. Does it hurt the movie dramatically? No, but I got to tell you, if he had brought it or they'd had someone else who did really bring it this could have been an all-timer yeah like, and instead it's just a very 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 good steven spielberg film which yeah. we should all be so lucky <laughs> <laughs> and uh i i'm keeping an eye on mike faced i'm oh, keeping God. an eye on ariana debose uh, because Huge. they're both amazing astounding um and i I'm, think mike face might actually it, i don't i'm not in interested in oscar prognostication but this might be Mike faced. Like, he's that good. Yeah. It's like yeah, when, it's like when you watch Anne Hathaway and Les Mis and you're like, this movie isn't very good, but she's getting an Oscar. That's <laughs> just that song, it's yeah, like Mike, that's that's yeah. how do you not give that an Oscar? That's what they like. Uh and uh, I I could rewatch the the opening Jets number over and so over good. again. Just it's really I'm great. Chewing on my fist on all those hot JD yeah. boys with their slits hair and their <laughs> You gasped. Uh, it's like, you yeah. audibly gasped. But like all the <laughs> You have a type. A, a, a bunch of 50s guys, and they're walking down the street all sweaty, and they walk through, like, a water stream from coming from a fire hydrant. It's like, somewhere Kenneth Anger is smiling, <laughs> chewing on my fist at all these hot boys. Yeah. Um, but that's that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Um, just, it, it's an exhilarating number besides. Right. Uh, well, you want, that, you, want that, staged. you want that passion, you want that to come somewhere. And if we're yeah. not going to get it from our lead... We'll take it where we can get it. And Um, whenever the the jets are sort of like walking abreast together, or the sharks, whenever the gangs are walking all together in a big group, those are really great shots. Those are really fun scenes. It's it's so impeccably, Mm. um, it's so impeccably crafted. Yeah, like on a technical level, like you you need to see this movie. If you don't see it in the theater, I get it, but do see it eventually, if only to look at just how to stage a musical. Because my god mm. it's a it's a class and i really really liked in the heights you liked it even more than i did there's some really I really great in stuff heights, in yeah. the heights uh these th- they have similar material and it's like it's artificial to put them up against each other uh but yeah in the heights only has like a few numbers i think that compete with the staging in this mm-hmm. west side story as good as in the heights is and it's really good um it's just mm, mm. but in the heights doesn't have a weak member of the cast and the Heights is pretty solid all the way yeah, through. So there's yeah. so there's that. <laughs> anyway, moving on, there's another uh, big, big Oscar contendery type movie uh, from a famous uh, uh, storyteller, uh, someone who's worked in film and television, and uh, it is Aaron Sorkin's Being the Ricardos. Uh, this is Aaron Sorkin. You know Aaron Sorkin. Uh, he did The West Wing and The Newsroom and Sports Night. And, uh, and he, he wrote movie screenplays besides. He did yeah. A Few Good Men, rather famously. Amazing uh, screenplay for A Few Good Men. He did uh, The American President. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did Social Network, which is... Yeah. I, I, I really love The Social Network. I think, um, it's, I think it's aging more poorly with every given day. I'm, uh, I'm, still, I'm waiting for the sequel is what I'm waiting that's for. That's an exciting prospect yeah. that I'm interested. Uh, he, um, did, he, uh, he did Steve Jobs, which I think is a little underrated. But he, uh. he's known for, in terms of, as a screenwriter, mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of... Uh, a complex wordplay. He yeah. likes he likes giving people a lot of analytical talk. 
and yeah. a lot of banter. And... Everyone in his movies is quick-witted. Yeah, uh, yeah. In, in a way that uh, in a way that I actually appreciate. I like have, seeing the quick-witted people. It's not that kind of like winky jokey thing that like a, a Joss Whedon might do. No, 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 no uh, it's, not like that at all. It, it's some of his voices kind of sound the same, but I it's think always that's the danger that he has. And yeah. I think you, I think you, I think you look at something like Molly's Game or mm. this. Everyone seems to have come from the same parents in the same neighborhood with the same education. Yeah. No matter who they are, <laughs> no matter where they come from, no matter what their background is, no matter what their job is, no matter what they do, they have the exact same cadence. And I got to tell you something, man. Sometimes it works. If everyone's in the same environment, it makes mm. sense. But when people are supposed to be disparate, it does not. Yeah. Uh, in fact, a lot doesn't work about being Ricardo's. This Very is frustrating. This is a pretty bad movie. I uh, agree. Aaron Sorkin also directed. He shouldn't direct. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe he can direct, but not this. Not this. Uh, He especially shouldn't direct uh, the life story of a comedian because Aaron Sorkin, while he has a little bit of wit to him and you might chuckle Mm -hmm. at the wry humor that he injects, Uh he doesn't really understand comedy, especially not the broad type of comedy that Lucille Ball is known for. No, it's interesting because Aaron Sorkin clearly, because this is a story, real fast, Mm -hmm. this is a story about one week in the production cycle of I Love Lucy. I Love Lucy, if you've never watched it before, is a milestone in television for a wide variety of reasons. For one thing, they were the television series that said, hey, let's shoot this thing on film Mm. so that we can repackage things later and have things like reruns rather than just shoot it on shitty video and it'll always look like crap. That was a big game changer in television right now. It's the reason why I Love Lucy is still on TV in a lot of places. And uh, and, uh, do a little bit of trivia. Do you know who designed the lighting on I Love Lucy? Mm. Carl Freund. That's right. Uh, He director of The Mummy. Yep. And uh, a photographer of Metropolis. Like, he worked on a lot of really uh, high-profile Hollywood productions. I Love Lucy. I Love Lucy. He was hired to come in, and he invented sitcom lighting, and we're still using it to this day. I Love Lucy is an enormously important series, and it's because the people who made it were perfectionists. They really cared a lot about this stuff. Uh, Lucille Ball was initially going to be kind of an ingenue, much like a Catherine Hepburn type. Mm. Her career never quite took off, but she was always brilliant at comedy, and she ended up veering in that direction. She ended up getting the series, and she incorporated uh, her husband, Desi Arnaz, uh, who was a a Cuban immigrant and a brilliant singer uh, Mm. and performer, also a very, very good actor. Uh, And uh, this this was also a time when, oh, we're going to have a couple, a married couple on television who aren't both white. That was also something that wasn't done in the 50s. They brought that into the mainstream. Uh, And the vast majority of the early All of Lucy episodes, and even many of the later ones, were impeccably crafted joke machines Mm. where they built to these intensely elaborate, brilliantly conceived, and brilliantly executed physical comedy routines. Some of these episodes have aged exceptionally well. <laughs> Watch the Vitamina Benjamin episode. Oh. Like, Mike, I think it's called Lucy Does a Commercial. Oh. My God. Brilliant bits from here, from oh. inside and out. Do Some you, of them have aged very, pop, very... Do you pop out at parties? <laughs> Are you unpopular? <laughs> um, and, oh. and... Some also some episodes are racist or sexist or have other mm. shitty things about them that they don't air very often anymore. But the majority of them hold up really well. 
mm. because they're just classic vaudeville routines. And, and Aaron Sorkin seems to have connected to that in terms of, oh, it's about developing and perfecting a routine. So he understands joke construction as a turn in terms of setup, payoff, and in the middle, uh, uh, finagling as you try to get the individual pieces just right. What he doesn't seem to understand is how to be funny. Because almost nothing in this movie is funny, even the parts that are supposed to be funny. He he also doesn't understand, uh, for for being a writer, he doesn't seem to understand how comedy writers operate, how they sort of like throw out ideas and try to construct a a humorous scenario. In this, it's almost like trying to uh, like unlock a secret Mm. uh, that there's it's very process oriented. That it's very technical. Constructing a joke is a technical process. And there's, there's a run, a a running bit throughout being the Ricardos where uh, Lucille Ball, who's played by Nicole Kidman in a really unconvincing makeup. It makes it look like Uh, Glenn Close. Isn't that weird? It's it's a little bizarre. They gave, they tried to like change the shape of her face. It's a little, really strange. Totally unnecessary. Um, Would have been better just not to be. Anna Ferris was right there. A lot of people um, could have done this. Yeah. But, uh, the the recurring bit is that uh, Lucille Ball is uh, wants to do a bit where she's uh, fiddling with flowers at a dinner table, mm-hmm. and it's depicted as this kind of weird sort of uh, like uh, meticulous uh, like uh, anal retentive thing that she needs to do. Like mm-hmm. it's it's uh, well the idea is they open the episode she, the episode that they're filming is called mm-hmm. Fred and Ethel have a fight. Uh, mm. And it's about their neighbors having like a fight that might break up their marriage. So she stages a dinner with both of them mm. to try to sort of encourage them to get back together because they're their friends. And the episode opens with her putting the dinner table together yeah, and trying to get yeah, the flowers so, just right. But trying this bit, she's doing this like physical comedy bit where she's yeah. trying to get it just right. Uh, surely that's something a comedian would just do. Like they'd sort of have the instincts to mm-hmm. figure out how this bit would go together. Right. Instead, we see scene after scene of Lucille Ball running the idea by people, insisting that she do it in a certain way. Mm-hmm. It almost seems like it's therapy for her. That's mm-hmm. the way Aaron Sorkin is staging well, it's, it. Well, it's... Hang, hang on a second. Okay, and, I'll, let you, um, I'll let you go. And he's clearly getting this wrong. <laughs> like, it, it's yeah. not building to any kind of important comedic impact. He's restaging a comedic bit as being psychologically important to the character. I was reminded of uh, the Peter Bogdanovich film, The Cat's Meow. Mm. Uh, And in that film, uh, Eddie Izzard plays uh, Charlie Chaplin. And Charlie Chaplin is walking around... it's it's about you know celebrities on a boat trip and uh, this is uh, under, that's putting it make it simple but yes that's, yeah it's true technically that's true it's more going on in that film but, but, yes. but there's a bunch of celebrities there in an enclosed space and uh, Charlie Chaplin is there working on his material and he's sort of going up to people and saying if I were to make a movie called The Gold Rush and uh, in it perhaps there's somebody yeah. eating their shoes would that be funny. Comedians don't do that. No, here's here's the. Uh, th- I'm sorry, you done. Well, I, 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 well just I'm, I'm, okay. this is well, it's just emblematic of the way Aaron Sorkin doesn't understand the way this show operated, the way comedy operates, mm-hmm. and I assume the way Lucille Ball operated. Well, I, he seems to misunderstand everything from beginning to end. Yeah, and, and it's really really Wait. frustrating to watch. And I I think you're you're kind of right, and I think you're kind of wrong about one thing, which is. A lot of people think that you can't explain humor if it's either funny or it's not. Mm. That's not true. The problem is when you explain humor, it ceases to be funny. Once you actually get into, okay, so 
a humor is it comes in variety of forms there's slapstick there's uh there's cerebral comedy mm. usually it comes from dashed expectations of some kind so in order to dash expectations you need to build up expectation and then switch it around again in a way that doesn't feel like a cheat um i did like a twitter thread where I explained the cowbell joke in Saturday Night Live, <laughs> uh, which surprisingly went viral. I had the, I never I was yeah, it was two a.m. and I was just bored. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't I end up getting you like a speaking gig or something? Like, I, had, yeah. I ended up like helping like teach a class once. It was crazy. <laughs> so like it was cool. But don't get me wrong. But like it was. It, I basically deconstructed the entire joke mm. and how the joke works. And once you do that. Hopefully you'll understand, like, okay, a lot goes into a joke. A lot of it is very intuitive, but you can't explain how a joke works. You can't explain, you can, and, and indeed, a lot of joke writing involves refinement. Mm. You can look at, uh, like, early stand-up, like, you know, sort of, like, find, like, live shows or whatever, or, like, uh, uh, open mics or whatever, from, uh, like, Patton Oswalt or other famous comedians, and they'll do their material... But it's refined yeah, when they well, put it on camera and like a stand-up yeah. special because they've told the joke a million times. They know what what's a funny word to say in the middle of it, what's not, how to set this up, how long to pause. Like, All of these things are intuitive, but they can also be taught and described. Aaron Sorkin is obsessed with describing them. Yeah. He's not mm. under, he's not just letting any of them just happen. Yeah, in a way and, uh, that even in a writer's room would make sense. Mm. Uh. I appreciate, and uh, the during the course of this film, this is you know the dramatic week of the production of I Love Lucy, mm. uh, and the two big dramatic things that are happening in uh, mm. Lucio Ball and Desi Arnaz's life. Desi Arnaz is played by Javier Bardem. Mm. Uh, Lucy was recently called out uh, as a communist mm-hmm. uh, because of something in her past. She uh, yeah. she had a relative the, who was a communist back before it was mm. the political like you know uh, red flag hot, hot that, button issue that yeah. it became in the 1950s. So, so at one point she so, actually uh, did sign a thing saying she was part of the communist party, but she never really. She's not admitted re- to it really or anything. a member of the Communist Party. Yeah. But this was a big issue because of the House on American Activities Committee, mm-hmm. and she was called out uh, in in the news. Yeah, by this Walter Winchell, big, no less. Yeah, so this was a, a big, uh, big, heavy weight of stress. The other mm-hmm. thing is uh, she has to announce that she's pregnant. And there's never been a pregnant woman on television, so she has to have all these conversations with the suits. Mm-hmm. And they look sinister in their suits yeah. in a big office. Uh, that and she uh, you know, puts her foot down and says, "Well, I'm Lucille Ball, and uh, because I'm Lucille Ball, I'm, I get to get away with this sort of thing." Yeah. This is another issue I had, not with his Steve Jobs movie, but with the one with Ashton Kutcher. Oh yeah. Which was just called Jobs. Yeah. Where because we knew where the character was going to end up. We were totally willing to let them mistreat everybody around them mm-hmm. in order in the case of Jobs mistreat everybody yeah. around them. Their greatness to, has, uh, been, has been proven by history, ergo anything they yeah. did before so their anything greatness they did is in the okay. Past. So yeah. uh, we're willing to forgive them or the film rather was willing to forgive them of a lot of their misdeeds and ill behavior because we understood as an audience members mm-hmm. where they were going to go. Uh, Lucille Ball seems to know the end of the story already. So she just sort of stands up and very confidently says, no, this is the way it's going to be because I'm Lucille Ball. I already made this. Yeah. And this is, we're telling this from 2021 mm-hmm. and it feels incredibly inorganic. No, it feels, it feels in, in, mm-hmm. in exceptionally false. Uh, Every, almost everything about this movie feels incredibly yeah, false. Like, Nic- Nicole Kidman is doing her best to sort of mimic mm-hmm. Lucy's mannerisms, but I feel like she's not emerging as a, character lucille uh, uh, lucille ball mm. is it's it's tricky because she has to play lucille ball off camera and on camera 
Yeah. And those are very two different, those are very different people. Mm. And on camera, she's as iconic a TV presence as we ever have had or ever will have. So when Nicole Kidman does the thing Lucy does, where she sort of mugs to the camera and lets her eyes go wide, uh, we know that's wrong. Mm. It's exceptionally distracting. And when she's not playing the TV persona, she might as well just be Nicole Kidman, man. Like, she's not really selling it. She she doesn't come across as Lucille Ball in any meaningful way. And so that and that's a that and that's hard to do in biopics. It's hard to it's a difficult mm. thing to pull off. I understand. You have, you have that. to come. You have to yeah. act a fictionalized version of a really well known figure. Yeah, it's very very you difficult. Have to balance between mimicry. I feel like mm. Javier Bardem does a little bit of a better job. Oh, I don't. Uh, well, because I think he's not trying to do Desi. True. I think he's trying to play a role a little bit better, which is I think better for an actor. I will give you that, and I think as a he doesn't is he doesn't he's not concerned with mimicry, which is good mm. because at least gives his performance a level of consistency. You can just accept it. Problem is, and this is something people talked about um, when Tom Hanks played Mister Rogers mm. in a beautiful day. It was a beautiful day in the neighborhood, right? Um, won't you be my neighbor? No, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. there's there's you be my, my neighbor was the was, documentary. Was the documentary yeah. okay? Someone pointed this out. I wish I remember who it was. Because it was a really, really good point. And I like him in that movie. But he's not really playing Mr. Rogers. He's playing Tom Hanks playing Mr. Rogers. Mm-hmm. Someone pointed out that, like, Mr. Rogers was like a cat. And Tom Hanks is more like a dog. <laughs> you know? Just just a little bit more energy. A little bit more mm-hmm. in your face. And I was watching this movie. And that's how I felt about Javier Bardem. Desi Arnaz. And I never really saw a lot of footage of him off camera. Mm-hmm. But even just when he's doing the on camera I Love Lucy shtick. Desi Arnaz was a cat. Desi Arnaz was incredibly approachable. Desi Arnaz was incredibly cuddly. Mm-hmm. At least that was the that was the persona he gave off, and Javier Bardem was often asked to do that in this movie. Javier Bardem is a wolf. <laughs> Javier Bardem he's, is he's better when he's playing like heavy. Like he's a very capable actor, but yeah. I like him when he's playing heavy. He's, he can be very very funny. He can mm-hmm. do all kinds of cool stuff. I'm, it's just he's never convincing as Desi Arnaz here. I never buy it. Mm. I never buy that he's playing that character. I just feel like we're seeing two characters. If you had called this the I Love Trudy show, <laughs> and it was about, and you just had that level of like. Mm. Uh, sort of uh, a fictionalized version of I Love Trudy. I would have been 100% fine with them. They would both have been okay, but they're really distracting. I will say who are good oh, are uh, William Frawley and Vivian Vance. Yeah, played by J.K. Simmons and Nina Ari. Nina Arianda? Arianna. Uh, Nina. It's Arianna. <laughs> Uh, Nina Arianda is her name. Yeah. They are really, really good actors. J.K. Simmons is great, and he's not afraid to be unlikable because William Frawley can be a dick. Uh, and Nina Arianda is... Look, yeah. And they look nothing like... Uh, just like uh, yeah. Nicole Kidman and Harvey Brighton. They don't look like William Frawley and Vivian Vance. Nobody does. No, they're very particular looks. We're too familiar with the way they look. Um, yeah. I, f- I feel like... The scenes with Nina Ariana uh, as Vivian Vance and sort of the dramas that she had to put up with mm-hmm. were really strong just yeah. because Nina Ariana was so good. Yeah. And uh, as it turns out, Vivian Vance had to endure a hell of a lot on that show. Uh, she was told not to lose weight. Yeah. Uh, because she she, she can't, can't be prettier than Lucy. Yeah. And that and you know, Lucille Ball evidently said that right to her face and that really gave her a complex. Yeah. Her uh, bit is to be the unlovable... Mm. housewife next door and And that wears on you after a while when mm. that's your whole persona to the whole world and it didn't help that uh, and this was true she and William Frodley hated each other yes they did 
It, it worked though on camera because that that natural that hatred, an, like, that when, antagonism, when, kind of when Fred and Ethel when Fred and Ethel bickered, you knew that there was something like really there. Like they really mm. wanted to get under each other's skin. Like it fit the chemistry, mm. but yeah, apparently it was hell to work together. Yeah, J.K. Simmons has a wonderful bit where he takes uh, Lucy across the street to his favorite bar because he's an alcoholic as well. Yeah, and. Uh, just sort of has a little bit of a heart to heart about what it is to be a comedian and actor. And he talks mm. about his old vaudeville days cause he'd been acting for decades. Yeah. And, uh, I, I feel like that was sort of a good bonding moment between the two characters. Yeah. The problem was because Lucy is such this amorphous entity in this film, mm. we're not, we're not learning anything for her. She doesn't seem to be taking anything from that. Mm-hmm. She's not really growing. She's, she's part, yeah. she's either all the way in charge or, so vulnerable that she loses all character, but not in a dramatic kind you, of way. It runs into this issue where you you were talking about it before. This mm. sort of great man narrative, or in this case, the great woman narrative, um, which is a, which is a sort of an ideology in history, which is um, history. It was changed because this person was just that good. Damn yeah. it, they were that good at their job, or that amazing at warfare, or whatever the fuck. Uh, that's shitty history. That is just mm. shitty history. That's not how life works. Not how history works. That's what we like to reduce it to That's, to simplify it. To tell well, it's to tell a story. To tell know? a story. But the thing is that those stories don't necessarily do us any favors, especially in a case like this, where the whole point is to go behind the curtain. So even though we go behind the curtain, we're supposed to see everyone warts and all. This movie boils down to if everyone listened to Lucille Ball, everything would have been fine forever. Mm. That's who's to say whether or not how true that is. But the point is, it doesn't satisfy dramatically. I will say this about the film. I think that some of the supporting cast is very, very good. Uh, Nina Ariana first blew me away uh, in another biopic about the entertainment industry called Stan and Ollie. You've you've talked about Stan and Ollie a lot. Stan and Ollie might not be the greatest biopic ever made, but it might be the best example of how to do a behind the scenes entertainment biopic. Mm. Everyone in it is spectacular. Everyone is embodying their roles. All of the, like, because when you're doing stories of entertainers, you want to see them entertain. If you're doing a story, about, if, you're, if you're doing a biopic of Frank Sinatra and you never saw him sing, how weird would that be? But if you see him sing, he needs to sing like Sinatra. He needs to be great. <laughs> yes. And if he's not, then it almost would have been better if you never let him sing. Stan and Ollie knows like we we were able to recapture the routines and we we're able to make them work so that they're just as funny now as they ever were because the actors are really really mm-hmm. good at it. But it also showed them like behind the scenes in a way that was actually illuminated all of those bits that we knew. Nina Arianda plays I think I think she's Stan Laurel's wife. I was getting which one's which one was Laurel? Was he the, was he the tall one or was he the the uh, Stan Laurel was was tall and thin was the short and thin and yeah and Stan Laurel Oliver Hardy was uh, large and thick yeah yeah uh, well in any case uh, she's incredible in that I thought she should have been Oscar nominated for mm-hmm. that so it's good to see her do something a bit more high profile that's kind of similar I think clearly someone saw Stan and Ollie and was like we'll just bring her back <laughs> J.K. Simmons is also great I also think that and I want to I want to give Sorkin this much credit I think the last act of the movie when all the shit hits the fan Mm. the variety of subplots are all coming to a head on the same night i think structurally is very sound there's a really there's a really good the the one the one the one most dramatic week in the production of i love lucy is a fine way to go about telling the story it's a good idea i think the way (laughs) that everything comes to a head on Mm. the night of 
is pretty impeccably crafted. And I particularly like the way that it turns out that the most important thing in the long run did not seem like the most important thing mm. this week. Yeah. And I kind of like how insidious that is. I think there's some good writing here, but it's not executed in a way that makes sense for the characters, for the history, for the show, or for the concept of comedy. It does not work. Yeah, it's another one where it, it, the, this entire movie basically is Ansel Elgort's performance in West Side Story, where like you're doing it. Mm. I I would be I would hesitate to say it's incompetent, but you're never showing me why you're here. You're never actually showing me why I Love Lucy was the greatest. You're telling me, but you're never showing me. You're telling me. Ansel Elgort that you're in love with this person I'm yeah, not seeing I, it in your to, eyes I need we need to feel it we need yeah. to, to make sure that uh, there's something about Aaron Sorkin the, is an incredibly analytical <clears throat> intellectual filmmaker maybe maybe paralleled only in, in the modern era by Christopher Nolan I, and uh, and that's a, that's a great strength of his. It can and be good. Um, it can work I, beautifully in with the right material. This is bad material for him. But I feel like uh, because he's so analytical, just like Christopher Nolan, yeah. his films seem, especially the ones he directs, lack heart. Yeah. And when he tries to inject heart, he falls back on a lot of old, sort of really treacly Hollywood tropes like mm. swelling music and yeah. gigantic climaxes that feel completely unearned because previously this has been a really kind of intellectual exercise for him. Yeah. That was my biggest issue with the trial of the Chicago seven. Mm. The ending was this big weepy Hollywood moment where everybody literally stands up and cheers and it feels completely out of place with the rest of the movie, which was about like rioting and violence and courtroom uh, courtroom case. Yeah. Uh, same with this. This is about a writer's room. This is about analyzing jokes. This is about deconstructing things. And then we have this big, gigantic, emotional climax mm -hmm. that feels like it comes out of nowhere. It feels yeah. like he's falling back on a lot of things that he saw work in other movies, yeah. but doesn't understand why they need to be in certain movies. Uh, so we get this analytical thing with characters that aren't really well thought out, and then the climax of Patch Adams. <laughs> It's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> Here's what it boils down to for me. And I was thinking about this. Like, mm. there's a lot of jokes in the movie. Or not jokes. There's are, there are hardly any jokes, actually. There's a lot. Mm. Everyone's quick-witted. Almost no one is witty, which is mm. a death in a movie like this. Um, but there's a lot of talk in the movie about uh, how the director of this episode is just a workman-like, not very interesting director. And they're, mm. they're kind of going behind his back half the time. Um. I feel that if you want to make a movie about I Love Lucy, I think you should be able to, or at least or even required, to direct an episode of I Love Lucy. <laughs> I don't think, can you imagine, I can't imagine Aaron Sorkin directing a good episode of I Love Lucy. I can't imagine it. No. I can't imagine no, no. it at all, and I think that just that alone is just not strong. I don't think that's a, that's, that's a, not a good place to start here. Hmm. It maybe could have been interesting if you tried to go completely in another direction and tried to show just how it wasn't funny and it was hellish and nothing was funny about it. But he thinks he's witty. And sometimes he can be. Not here. Nah. Very, very frustrating film. Very, very frustrating for, film. For, yeah, overall. Also, I just want to say right now, little thing. Uh-huh. Little thing, but as someone who's watched a lot of I Love Lucy... Some serious continuity flubs too. Like there's a there's a bit where an executive producer gives a big speech and he tells Lucy that's the best thing I've ever written, and Lucy says no, that was Vitamita Vegemin, mm. an episode which, which wouldn't be written for another ten episodes. There is so a, come on. 
there's other little details that Aaron Sorkin clearly yeah. just didn't research, um, or didn't care, or or, 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 or cared a, more about like we need to we need to remind people of this famous uh, scene whether or not it fits. There's a there's also something that feels like it's just being included to pad out the movie, but we get a lot of flashbacks yeah. to the way uh, Lucy and Desi first met and yeah. their courtship rituals their and greatest hits. Yeah, yeah. and you know the, how they moved in, what a lot of her anxieties are, and how she used to be impoverished and now she's rich and she wants to hang on to that. Uh, and when they first meet, she's wearing. Uh, like black eye makeup. Like yeah, she was, not, she was, she was, she was in a movie where she was playing like someone who'd been beaten up. Yeah. Uh, she, she was playing a, a character in a movie where she had been beaten up. I think she said by a pimp character. You look up that movie. There's no pimp character in that movie. Mm. And it's a real movie and nobody gets beat up in that movie. Mm. So why did Aaron Sorkin make that up? Yeah. Did he not Weird, do research right? or was he just coming it up out of whole cloth because he wanted to. There's another bit where I'm really curious if this is true. Mm-hmm. I, I'd never heard this before, but inserting it into the movie feels like a weird kind of fan service, but there's a bit where they go into the writer's room to explain that Lucy is pregnant and we want to write it into the show. So we're going to have to find a way to do that soon because we're on a clock here. Mm-hmm. Eventually she's going to be visibly pregnant and we have to deal with it on camera or we have to commit to like having mm-hmm. her stand behind boxes all the time. Uh, Wait, do you remember the Lennon sisters on the Lawrence Welk show? I've seen so many soap operas where they just tried to hide that. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they get away with it. Usually they don't. Um, but in any case, they go to the writer's room and the writers are busy talking about an episode where they go to Italy and Lucy decides to stomp grapes. Mm. And everyone's like, "That's no one does that really anymore. That's not even a thing. And they're like, yeah, but we think it'd be funny. And we dedicate a big chunk of the scene to just trying to figure out this bit, which is one of the more famous bits in I Love Lucy, probably mm. second only to the conveyor belt ch- with chocolates. All right? I want to see Nicole Kidman try to do that. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> but it's like, but we see, like, all of a sudden, like, they're talking about this bit, and then, like, we get this close-up of Nicole Kidman's face, as she, and she's like, I can see it! Mm. And, like, we see the scene as she's, like, stomping on the grapes and it's like oh what a comedic genius she can visualize a bit that's been described you're not really selling it as well you think you are Aaron Mm. but on top of it all we're doing this whole bit that episode won't come up for multiple seasons that's a long way down the road if they came up with it early and said we'll come up with the some ways with this bit later fine but I it feels like you're shoving it in so that you can put in one of the most famous Lucy bits because there's no other place in the script for it because of where uh, it takes place. Yeah, yeah. And as a result, it just feels false. Uh, I, the, so much just, of the movie feels false. It's really hmm. frustrating. And, and I'm and I'm not exactly sure what Aaron Sorkin is trying to get. Like, he wants to tell the I Love Lu- yeah. Lucy story. Clearly wants to lionize... I love Lucy. Yeah. It's, it's one of the best TV shows ever made. Certainly it's one of, one of, one the, of most, the more important ones ever at made. At least that, if nothing uh, else. That you, and t- to your point, it still plays. Mm-hmm. A lot of the episodes are still incredibly funny. Watch the slowly uh, I turn bit. Oh my God. Is that one of the funniest <laughs> things ever? Slowly I turn. The bit where they try to glue, uh, glue a side of beef back together. Uh, is, is really hilarious. Uh, but Aaron Sorkin, because he's not a comedian, because he doesn't come from a background of comedy, is looking at it like a TV production. Yeah. And he's missing a lot of the nuances of a comedic TV production. Yeah. And, uh, 
And not just like TV production, not just like, oh, we're all kind of witty people standing around talking like, no. Broad comedy, naked as, gun style comedy. As such, it feels like he does. He himself doesn't understand why I Love Lucy is important. He just understands that it was. Yeah, and so I'm it's missing. I'm missing what he's trying to tell me by pointing me toward I Love Lucy. I know it's funny. You clearly don't. Yeah, and I'm frustrated by your movie. Yeah, let's move on. There's one more film review in this week. Uh, mm-hmm. I I wasn't able to. I. I had to start it. I have a screener and I had to stop it. So I'm not going to oh, review okay. this movie. I didn't see the whole thing. It's not fair. Mm-hmm. I was intrigued by what I saw, though. Tell me about Red Rocket. Uh, Red Rocket, latest film from Sean Baker, who previously did uh, The Florida Project and Tangerine. Uh, Sean Baker's films are about uh, people who are living in uh, extreme poverty mm-hmm. uh, in sort of, I don't want to say forgotten, just completely drab, overlooked portions of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tangerine was about sex workers in Hollywood, and it was filmed on portions of Santa Monica Boulevard that you do not see in movies. Always appreciated. Uh, it's, yeah, um, he's also very fond of donut shops, and donut shops mm. are actually a big part of uh, Red Rocket. Uh, in the Florida Project, it was about a building project that was really close to Disneyland, where a lot of impoverished people were, and the, the sort of the desperation that they went through uh, to pay rent, and it was all seen through the eyes of this little girl, and I really like the Florida Project. I think it was actually really heartbreaking, especially the end. Um, this one is about a character named Mickey Saber. He is uh, played by Simon Rex. And he is an ex-porn star. And he is returned to his little small town in Texas. And in Sean Baker fashion, this is the drabest, ugliest landscape you could look at. Hmm. Uh, it's filmed in widescreen, but it is only used to capture just how featureless everything is. Nothing's interesting about where this guy is. And he's gone back uh, to hustle. He is clearly, he when we first see him, he has a black eye and he has no money. He has hmm. literally just the shirt on his back. And he kind of tries to badger and banter and bug people into getting by. Um, I've known people like this. Mm-hmm. We've we've seen movie characters like this before. The charming cad who tries to sweet talk their way into stuff mm-hmm. when they really don't have any intention of uh, making good on any of their promises. It's interesting to me how that character can be entirely different depending on what genre. Yeah. But if it's yeah. a broad comedy, we're supposed to like them. Mm-hmm. And if it's a film noir, they're going to get everyone killed. Yeah. And, and this this is leaning a little bit more t- toward film noir. Um, okay. Sean Baker also set this film uh, in late 2016, right before the 2016 presidential election. And we actually see Donald Trump and uh, and Hillary Clinton on screens and in the background of certain scenes. And I think he is inviting us to make a comparison between this hustler character who's mm. badgering people and trying to uh, just kind of get get what he needs to get by with a huckster like Donald Trump, right. who is just sort of sweet-talking and has no actual skills or talent or isn't providing anything. Uh, the story, uh, he ends up, selling weed for somebody he used to sell weed for so he gets a little bit of money he ends up spending time at a local donut shop where he takes a shine to the 17 year old clerk a young girl named strawberry and uh he doesn't just see a potential romance he kind of falls in love with strawberry but he also wants to get her involved in uh the adult film industry so he's kind of prepping her and priming her and taking her to strip clubs uh, he's you know in his late forties and she's seventeen years old and uh, the, 
a so lot. So this is horrifying. A, well, a big, big, big portion of this movie is devoted to this relationship that he's having with this girl and what he intends with this girl. And enough of it goes on that you're not really sure what kind of point of view you're supposed to be taking uh, away from this movie. I don't want to fall into that uh, trap of saying that depiction is the same as advocacy. Uh, that's sort of a, a rather a po- unfortunately popular critical uh, talking point these mm-hmm. days. But here, because this film is two hours and ten minutes in length, I think that we spend a little bit too much time with him priming this teenage girl. You know, the depiction is not the same mm-hmm. as advocacy, but mm-hmm. the way we depict it can have an impact. Yeah. And it's also perfectly reasonable to say that the depiction of certain things, especially depending on what tone you take, how much screen time they take up, mm-hmm. what the overall takeaway from the film is, whether it's positively, negatively, etc., um, can be in considered by some, reasonably so, to be in poor taste. Mm. I think that's a difference that some people yeah. don't always bring about. It's like it's one thing to say like it's not necessarily advocating it, but it's also not necessarily something we want to watch, which is mm. also a fair thing to say. Yeah, and, I haven't uh, seen it, so I don't know about this one. But it, I under- if it rubs you the wrong way, it sounds like it could be a reasonable. Yeah, there, there's there's a, li- a a little little whiff of unsavoriness I hear, um, but. Oh, and also uh, he's he has moved in with his ex-wife. Uh, she's uh, Lexi. She's played by Brie Elrod, and she is also an ex-porn star. They used to uh, star in features together, and they've mm-hmm. since had a, a big, big falling out. Uh, the way this movie ends, I think, really cements it as a Trump metaphor, where um, mm. everything goes wrong, everything's horrible, the liar is revealed, but he still kind of gets what he wants. Uh, at the end of it, he mm. kind of get. It's not that he gets away with anything. It's just that, despite all his hustling and despite everybody in town finally seeing him for the liar and the the callow jerk that he is, uh, he still kind of gets a prize. Yeah, and uh, and I think Sean Baker might be saying something about sort of the way hustlers and liars are treated in the Trump era. Um, maybe. Because it's so long and because he spends so much time with these sort of love stories and a few other side characters, it's difficult to say what Sean Baker's actually trying to get out with this one. It's actually a little bit unfocused. It feels a little bit meandery for a while. And it doesn't help that the main character is incredibly obnoxious. Uh, He's fast-talking all the time. He has uh, uh, a really... uh, uh, yeah. The, the kind of he's the kind of character that you as an audience member want to argue with. Yeah, like you want to say something to him just to shut him down. Yeah, but because you you can't interact with the movie, he just gets to yeah. yammer and yammer and yammer on and keep on mistreating people, and it's a little too much to take, especially at two hours and ten minutes. Right. So well, this is kind of my point about like when I was talking about mm-hmm. how like um, just because you portray something doesn't mean you're advocating for it. Mm-hmm. You're still portraying it. And we're still stuck with it. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're stuck with it and it's like, okay, so I'm not necessarily saying this guy is right. Yeah, you still thought we'd want to hang out with him for two hours. Maybe I didn't want to. Mm. That's a reasonable takeaway. And that's the danger you play mm. when your protagonist is an asshole. Yeah. Uh, that's a dangerous line. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, he's an antihero. Doesn't mean I want to hang out with him. Yeah, there's a, there's a term in the adult film industry. They call it a suitcase pimp. And a suitcase pimp is um, a male talent. Uh, let me look up the, the definition. Is the, uh, Sean Baker this. put it this way. Um, male talent who lives off female talent. They kind uh, of like couch surf with other 
other uh, stars in the, the industry. Right. And uh, he ends up getting accused of being a suitcase pimp uh, throughout, throughout the course of this movie. So I think Sean Baker wanted to explore what is what is the, the life of this kind of a character. Yeah. The, the suitcase pimp, the character. And Interesting. I'm sure at some point he might have even wanted to call it suitcase pimp, but that's not as graceful a title. It's not as... Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a different vibe. I will say that Sean Baker does have a, a wonderful talent, and he shot this film on 16 millimeter. Yeah, uh, he likes to shoot things on kind of low-fi film. Uh, Sean Baker is interesting in that he has stuck by his. He's sort of become this indie star in the indie film world. Yeah, and uh, because he has such a low-fi uh, aesthetic, and likes to like he shot Tangerine on a phone. He shot this on 16 millimeter. Uh, he is not being courted by the Hollywood mainstream. Yeah, I haven't heard him like being offered any superhero movies. Wouldn't Wouldn't you love to see the Sean Baker superhero movie? That'd be <laughs> uh, at, at this film, however, Red Rocket, it, it is unfocused. It's a little unsavory. It's really annoying. It's the least of his films that I've seen, oh. uh, which is a little upsetting because I have liked his previous work. Uh, and I do think he does have a good talent for, you know, in using that sort of lo-fi film, capturing kind of a lo-fi aesthetic of a part of America that we don't see cameras pointed at. Right. But we've had a lot of great films about impoverished characters this year. I recommend the film Holler. Mm. Uh, that is uh, a, an excellent film. It might make my top ten list. Uh, God, was but this you do, year? Yeah, Holler was this year. God, this has been a long year. <laughs> it's been a long year. We've seen a lot of movies. Uh, Red Rocket, maybe not quite worth your time. I was a little oh, little, little disappointed by it. Well, let's review the movies on a critically acclaimed mm. scale. Uh, again, for anyone's new or wants a refresher, we review films on a scale of C- to C+. The highest grade you can get from us is a C+. That is above average. We recommend you see it. Might be the best movie ever. Might just be quite good. We recommend you see it. It's a C+. C is average, well, some good, some bad, maybe better for some audiences than others, but a mixed bag. It's a C. It's average. And C- minus is below average. That's uh, everything from, we just don't generally recommend you run out and see this one, to this is the worst thing we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. On that note, where does Red Rocket land? Uh, it's it's a low C. It's okay. not. It's not quite a, a wash. There. Mm. There's. You know. I. I do appreciate the the rawness of it. There's a. You know. Something going on here that I was able to sort of latch onto, but uh, it. It could have been so much better. And yeah. the the lead character is just so grating yeah. that it, it. I ended up like sort of feeling stressed out at the end of it. All right. What about being the Ricardos? Being the Ricardos is a C minus. I did yeah. not like this movie. I feel like uh, Aaron Sorkin didn't know what he was doing. Yeah. I feel like he bit off more than he can chew. I feel like the actors didn't even get a, a full fist around the the characters, other than uh, Vivian Vance and William Frawley. Everyone yeah. else is just and and all the supporting players are Sorkin stock characters. Yeah, they could have stepped in from mm-hmm. any single one of his shows. Mm-hmm. I agree. This is a C minus. I think I'm maybe a little bit as 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 detailed in my criticism as I may be, I think I'm a little less passionate about it than you are. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, this is not a good film. I think this is a film that is coasting on, if Aaron Storkin writes it so that it sounds important, it kind of feels important. Mm -hmm. But if you actually pay attention to the words and the actual, like what is trying to be conveyed and what is not successfully being conveyed, as opposed to just how important the scene sounds, Mm -hmm. this is a spectacularly empty not very well conceived film that is trying to 
shove a greatest hits compilation into what was really kind of an intimate tale. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the leads are miscast, but I agree. Nina Arianda and uh, uh, J.K. Simmons are anchoring this pretty well. Yeah, and yeah. I think every time they're on screen, the movie is better for it. Uh, so yeah, C minus for me. And then uh, I'm really torn actually on West Side Story because on one hand, so much of it is superlative, mm. but I can't understate just how <laughs> if you if the main romance doesn't work, the whole movie falls down a peg. Mm. So I think I'm going to wait and see how you land and maybe react accordingly. Where do you land okay. on this? Uh, I think there's far too much great stuff in this to not give it a C plus. Okay. I, I love the dancing. I love the staging. I love the music. Uh, a lot of the supporting cast is uh, incredible. Incredible. Uh, that that the lead is miscast and that a lot of the love story doesn't play out isn't necessarily relevant when you're enjoying G officer Krupke that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like a, a lot of the musical numbers in a musical are what it, it's important. Right. And when you, they nail it as well as they did and mm-hmm. as they did in this film, then I'm willing to forgive uh, that sort of uh, character problem and plotting problem. I see your point, And mm-hmm. I'll say this right now. While I can agree that, you know, it doesn't get in the way of G officer Krupke. Uh, it does get in the way of Maria or Tonight, or any of the other songs that Tony is involved in. So I think it does hinder it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, since you give it a C+, mm. and I agree with your overall points, Okay, I'm going to give it a symbolic C. Where I agree <laughs> okay. with your point, but I don't think... I want to make it clear that I think this is... I think someone dropped the ball on this. And I know it was Ansel mm. Elgort, but I think it was also just whoever decided to cast Ansel Elgort. Mm. Um, this could have been epic like timelessly epic Hmm. and instead it's so damn good except for this one really important part (laughs) so uh, i'm gonna give it a c but it's a high c all right and the things that you say are great are 100 percent great and there's so many wonderful things about it but it's a frustrating film for me um all right and that is it for critically acclaimed this week thank you everybody for listening we'll be back next week with something there's a lot. This this is the end of the year, so we're getting a lot of the bigger releases. They're cramming a um, lot of like Oscar stuff. Uh, Spider Man comes out next uh, next oh, week, right? So yeah. we'll be uh, well, one of us at least will be reviewing oh. the new Spider Man. Uh, no, I mean, I guess I'll try to see the new Spider Man. <laughs> oh, you poor thing. Um, no, I'm sorry. What what else is coming? Okay, so we got uh, Spider Man's coming out next week. We got uh, bada bing, bada boom. There's another. Oh oh oh, the new Guillermo del Toro. Nightmare, oh, Alley Nightmare Alley comes out, comes next, out week. next week. A new George Clooney film, The Tender Bar, mm, comes starring, out next uh, starring, week. Uh, starring Ben Affleck, uh, yep. who's been a lot of the acting conversations for awards. I, I don't like that a lot of the conversations where we have to have about these movies are just in their award contenderness. Yeah, that's not what's important here. I, that, that is kind of what we're reacting to because yeah. that's the way studios release them. They like to put their, uh, yeah. what they think should win awards right at the end it, of the year. It's and, hard not to like incorporate that into the mm. conversation, but it is where we are right yeah, now. And, and sometimes people are like award worthy. Mm. So uh, the lost daughter is next week too, as well. Oh, Jill and Hall's yeah, directorial really debut. See the lost daughter. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to try to see drive my car, which actually came yeah. out this week. Um, yeah, I need to see that too. But uh, it's, I keep hearing it's amazing. Yeah, it's for, a, a, a new film from uh, the director of Happy Hours, which I saw in Ovid this year. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's really, really, really wonderful. Yeah. And then uh, a week after that, we're going to have reviews of The Matrix Resurrection, The Tragedy of Macbeth, Sing 2, 
Uh, Cyrano. Cyrano. Mm -hmm. And then after that, basically the last like big review episode in December is where Whitney and I try to catch up on everything. Yeah, we're going to do a a year in review of the things we missed. Yeah, and then uh, the last week of December or the first week of January, depending on how the timing works out and the dates, I haven't checked the calendar, we're going to be doing our list of the best movies of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, which should be interesting because it's an interesting year with, frankly, a lot of really good movies in it. Yeah, and um, my list is not going to look like yours. I, I guarantee you. you that, but I have uh, got some really interesting uh, stuff on mine, and it, it's all it's all in flux. I'm still yeah. catching up on a lot of things, a couple of big movies I haven't gotten around to. I haven't seen Drive My Car yet. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, let's see, what else? What are some of the other big ones I haven't seen yet? I haven't seen, mm. uh, I still haven't seen Belfast. I need to catch up mm. on that. I finally caught up on the movie Pig. The, yeah, the I Nicolas need to catch up on that film. too. I saw, I saw Pig. Um, yeah, I, recently... I haven't seen Zola. I haven't seen Shiva Baby. Uh, those are yeah. two two big ones I kept hearing about. Only just today did I catch up on Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, and you were one hundred percent correct. That movie is amazing. <laughs> it's so funny. That movie is absolute mm. ludicrous, mm. sublime silliness, and I'm so glad I made time for it. <laughs> the point it's paper, great. The boy on his paper stops at a tree. He weighs in an owl. The owl scans him with a laser beam. <laughs> the tree opens up, and he goes into a supervillain's lair. <laughs> oh my god. It's great. Barb and Star is hilarious. It's great. Anyway, we'll talk about more about Barb and Star, Shirley, and a bunch of other really mm-hmm. great movies in a couple of weeks. But anyway, that's that's what's coming up next on Critically Acclaimed. We also have a lot of other shows here at our network. Mm-hmm. Thank you for enjoying all of those. Uh, don't forget, you can always email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of mm-hmm. We've Got Mail. So feel free to ask us questions, take us to task, whatever you want to do. Uh, we also have a P.O. box. Whitney, what's our P.O. box? Uh, you can, yeah, uh, Mail us a letter. We like that. Uh, P.O. Box 641-565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. It's always a pleasure to hear from you in any format, but letters are just fun, aren't yeah. they? Uh, I, I have a few other things I'd like to hype. Um, yeah, go for it. Because I'm still doing All About Ovid with B. Peterson. Uh, we have an episode coming up in a couple of couple of days. Mm-hmm. We're going to do our December episode. It's a monthly thing. Remember, We're All About just... Ovid is spelled with all O's, O-L-L-O-B-O-U-T. O-V-I-D. Oh, because Ovid is the, the streaming service. Get it? Ovid is the deep cut art house streaming service, and uh, B and I watch stuff on it. And uh, we like to talk about what we see, because there's a lot of interesting stuff. I was on uh, a podcast with Mark Radulich, and uh, we talked about wolf, lamb, and pig. Hmm. We called it the Hoofcore episode. <laughs> it's a genre I just made up. Uh, and... Yeah, you can uh, look. I, I did a like a live stream, but you can actually catch the uh, catch the episode on that. It's awesome. And uh, and my new radio show's finished. Yeah. Uh, if if you're a twenty dollars patron, you you have access to it already. But if mm-hmm. you're not a twenty dollars patron, contact me on the social media, and I will sell it to you. Uh, the title is "She Began to Dance Around," and it's about a woman who is stalking Frosty the Snowman. <laughs> About 22 minutes long. It stars, yeah, uh, stars my uh, my very very talented friend Chelsea Spirito, yeah. and uh, it's it's all just monologue into yeah. a tape recorder. And she's she, amazing. She's in great it. in it. She's it's, really really it's fun. It's unbelievably stupid, and uh, I think yeah. you'll enjoy it. And, uh, well, and it's very profane. It's R rated. And don't forget, Whitney has other radio dramas as well. And if you ha- haven't downloaded those or. Uh, got those already from him. Maybe he can work out a deal. It's like a bulk rate or something. Yeah. The, the yeah. more you get, the less you pay per show. Yeah. Also, uh, my partner and I have a soap store called Salt Cat Soap. Uh, it is on Instagram and uh, Twitter and Facebook at Salt Cat Soap, all one word. Uh, we sell and make uh, designer soaps 
uh, handcrafted, really smell great, lots of really cool designs. Some of them are very novel. Uh, and well, they're all very novel actually, mm-hmm. but just some of them are like you know, just like ooh, we got some really cool stuff. We got like this uh, holiday soap where it looks like a Christmas tree and some presents have been like frozen in a glacier, and they're all every all those individual pieces are made of soap. So as you wash the soap, the soap disappears, and then you have all these other in, mini soaps mm-hmm. inside. It's really neat. Um, anyway, that's available on Etsy. You can look it up on Etsy, all one word, Soul Cat Soap, or you can find the link on our socials. Thank you everybody who's already bought some. The reviews have been really great, and we really really appreciate it. Um, anyway, and of course, uh, all, big thank you to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, we have a lot of exclusive shows on the critically acclaimed network Patreon, uh, including shows about Star Trek, Batman, the Academy Awards, commentary tracks. Uh, we got a lot of stuff coming up. It's very, very exciting. And thank you, everybody, once again. Uh, without your contributions, we would not be able to keep the show going. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for making that possible. It means the world to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, on that note, we're gonna we're gonna say goodbye for the for now. Never forget, everyone's a critic. I wanna go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to eleven grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.